was this man, and uh, he spotted a lamp by the roadside, and uh, he decided to pick it up. He began to rub it, and as he was rubbing it, a genie popped out. The genie said, I will grant you one wish. Wish wisely. The man thought for a moment. He said, I want a very, very important job. In fact, I want a job that no man has succeeded at. The genie said, poof, you're a housewife. Okay, <clears throat> figured it'd be a rough crowd today, so uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 John, and I've entitled the message, The Real Deal, The Real Deal. Lord, I just thank you so much for the worship that has transpired. I thank you for the baptism coming up and the witness that it will be. And now as we just focus on your word here for a moment. It may be short, but I pray that it will be powerful, Lord. And so I ask that you would fill me afresh. I ask that you would fill this auditorium. Lord, your word can give us life. Truth is always tough and hard, but when received and practiced, it brings life. I pray life. I pray freedom. We've been talking about freedom. I pray freedom now, Lord, and I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. You know, living in America, it's easy to talk a big game, isn't it? A lot of us can talk a big game. We can talk about our devotionals. We can talk about, well, we go to church. We can talk about we even put some money in the plate. Maybe volunteer some. But you know what? It's all really hollow often, isn't it? I mean, there's no passion. There's no real emotion behind our faith. We're, We're not passionate about Jesus in his kingdom. And this morning, John is going to give us a rather clear, definitive way to know if I'm really the genuine article, the real deal. And uh, can, Tim, can you put up the verses just for today, this morning? First John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one. You've had it from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you've heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it, for the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. John tells us very clearly that the real Christian, the genuine Christian, loves, period. Now, we Americans just have one word for love, and, you know, if I was to line up 10 people, I would probably get 10 different definitions of love, and this is very confusing to us. In fact, the imprecision of the English language quite often makes translation a really difficult process. For example, the Inuit language of the Eskimos, did you know they have at least six words for snow? For example, they have a word for wet snow, packed snow, fine snow powdered snow, dry snow, and soft snow. And we, on the other hand, have one word. We just say snow. And it'll be flying soon. Interestingly enough, the Greek language has four main words for love, whereas I said earlier, we just have one. The four main Greek words are this. Eros, which most of us know, that's the sensual love. That's the romantic love. And then there's phileo, which is brotherly love. We get the word Philadelphia from that, the city of brotherly love. And that is a love of friends. And then there's storge, which is family love. This is the love that a mother, for example, would have for her child. And then there is agape love. Agape love is often defined as divine love. 
It is a selfless love. And in fact, we are given a great definition of agape love so that we're not confused in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 through 7. I find it interesting that we tend to read these verses, you know, at a wedding. And they are good for a wedding. Notice what it starts out. So agape love is this. Love is patient. Agape love is patient. How are you doing with your driving? Well, we don't need to talk about that one. That's convicting. Let's just move on. Love is kind. Kind. You know what that means? It means it does good things. It does beneficial things. It also says that love is not jealous. You don't possess. You're not possessive, but you share. It also says that love is not boastful. It means love doesn't have a lot of hot air. You know people with hot air? Man, you ever been talking to someone with a lot of hot air? Yep, yep, we all have. Hopefully that's not us. It means we don't talk about ourselves. Love is not proud. It means better than. That's pride. Do I, do I really think I'm better than? Hmm? Love is not rude. That means love's not a jerk. Love's not a jerk. It does not demand its own way. That means love is not selfish. Love gives in to the other person what's best for them. It is not irritable. It means it's not a hothead. It does not rejoice with injustice. It means it does not rejoice with tabloid news, fake news. It does not rejoice with that which is false, that which is a lie. It stays away from it. It abhors it. But rather, notice what it says. True love rejoices with the truth whenever the truth wins out. I'll tell you what. It matters to God. Truth matters. I don't care what this culture says. Truth matters. And if you really are going to love, then you are going to be, and I'm going to be, truthful. I think I forgot to talk about love keeps no record of longs. We'll talk about this in a moment. It means it forgives. That's a hard one. Huh? Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. My friend, that is agape love defined. Please notice that agape love is not sentimental love. In fact, agape love is an emotional love. Agape love is an act of the will. In other words, true agape love is a decision. And the apostle John in the verses we just looked at In verses 7 and 8, he uses the word agape. So he says this, the old commandment to love agape one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. So John tells us this command to agape, this command to love, isn't a new commandment. It's actually old, and he's right. It's found in the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6 and verse 5, Tim put it up, we're told this, and you must love the Lord with all of your heart in all of your soul, in all of your strength. You know what that means? It means we're to make God the top priority of our lives. He is to be the one consuming passion of our lives. Can you honestly, if Jesus were standing right here and he were to ask you, am I your consuming passion? What would you say to him? Could you honestly look at him in the eyeballs? Could you really look at him and say, yeah, Jesus, You're my one consuming passion. You know, most of us have either heard or used the term geek, right? 
Now, a geek tends to refer to a person who's smart. They tend to be accomplished in scientific and technological pursuits. Usually, though, a geek is someone that there's a picture. Usually, a geek, though, is someone who's kind of socially inept, right? Uh, They're socially awkward. Interestingly enough, though, there's a company named the Geek Squad. You ever heard that, the Geek Squad? Have you ever, do you remember what their slogan is? Here's their slogan. We're geeky, yes, but we also know what you're going through because nobody is more into technology than we are. So when your computer breaks down, who do you call? You call the Geek Squad. Come on, we call the Geek Squad, and they're going to fix your problem. Now, you know what the problem is? That's great for a computer, but how often do we treat God like he's a member of the Geek Squad? C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, he talks about when he was young how he approached God as a member of the Geek Squad. He didn't use that exact term. When Lewis was a young boy, he learned that his mother was dying. He prayed fervently to God, God, heal her. God, fix my mother. Sadly for C.S. Lewis, his mother died. He was devastated. Later, Lewis, though, would write these very insightful words. Listen, I had approached God or my idea of God without love, without awe, even without fear. He was, in my mental picture, neither savior or as judge, but merely a magician. And when he had done what was required of him, I supposed he would simply, well, he would just go away. It never crossed my mind that the tremendous contact which I solicited should have any consequences beyond restoring the status quo. You see, any time I contact God, I pray to God, and I expect him and I desire him to fix my problem, fix my spouse, fix my financial situation, give me this job, and then when it happens, I kind of expect him to go away. And I'm just going to continue on status quo, doing what I want to do. I'm treating God as a member of the geek squad. You see, we are to love God. You know what that means? It means we are to seek his face. That's relationship. Not seeking his hand. God is not a cosmic vending machine. But in the Old Testament, we're not only told that we are to love God, Going on to this morning, what we really want to focus on, we're told this in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Tim, can you put it up? Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. You ever heard that? That's in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know how the Jews understood this? The Jews understood that this meant that I was to be nice to my Jewish neighbor. I was to do kind things to my Jewish neighbor. But you know those Gentiles? They're dogs. I can do anything I want to a Gentile. I can mistreat the Gentile. In fact, Rabbi Shimon bar Yohai said this, the best Gentiles should be killed. Wow. It's good news for us, huh, as Gentiles. What do you think? So I want you to think about it. John says something interesting there, here, though. He says, I'm not only giving you the old commandment to love one another. He says, you know it. But look what he says in verse 8. Tim, put it up again. He says, yet that old commandment is also new. Now, how in the world can a commandment be old and yet new at the same time? 
Answer, because Jesus gives an entirely new perspective to how you're to love your neighbor or what it means. A couple of weeks ago, we briefly looked at the Good Samaritan. I want to look at it from a different perspective, just for a moment. I want to look at it from Jesus' perspective. Tim, can you put up Luke chapter 18? And we'll find the story of the Good Samaritan, which we know so well. Verse 25, one day an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Bad idea. By asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Answer, nothing, nothing. You can't do anything. I can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Jesus replied, but what did, so he's going to play along with this guy. So what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right you are. He gets part one of the test right. Now watch what Jesus does to him. Though. Part two, do this and you will live. See, Jesus isn't so much interested in what you know as in what you do. Jesus isn't so much interested in what you know, but in what you do. So watch this. The man wanted to see, he knows he's in trouble. He's not stupid. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he goes, Jesus, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Jesus goes, great, I'll give you the answer, an answer you don't want. Jesus replied with this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. That's the Jericho Road. Bad stretch of land because there's caves on both sides. And watch what happens. He's attacked by the bandits, which nothing really unusual about that. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and they left him for half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest comes along. And when he saw the man lying there, what did he do? He just passed over. A temple assistant, that would be an assistant pastor, walked over and looked at him lying there. Well, at least he looked at him, and he passes by on the other side. With friends like that, who needs enemies, right? Then the despised Samaritan comes along. Remember, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. I mean, these guys are, are arch enemies of one another. You don't get the story unless you understand how badly Samaritans and Jews hated one another. The Samaritan comes along, and he sees the man. He felt compassion on the Jewish man. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the end where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay the next time I am here. Now, which one of these, now watch this, which one of these would you say is a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked, and the man replied, the one who showed him, Mercy, bingo, ding, 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 you win. Then Jesus said, now what does he do to him? Yes, now you go and do the same. Ah, you go and do the same. You know, God bless American Christianity. But man, are we butchering this parable? Did you know that? We're just butchering this story. You know what? If you go to the average church, they'll say the story's about They'll say the stories about helping the poor, the downtrodden, the needy, the widow. You ever heard that? The orphan. This is what this parable is about, they will say. They will say, in fact, one of our jobs, in fact, we need to start working on real problems as a church. We need to start writing laws. We need to get lobbyists. We need to spend millions of dollars, you know, propositioning Congress and the Senate and the president and get them to write laws to deal with the economically poor, the sex slavery 
on and on and on. In fact, I, had, I heard one evangelical pastor say, he said, you know what? I would join Satan himself if he were for the cause of solving the sex slavery problem. That in and of itself is enough. And I say, ding, thanks for playing. You're wrong. This parable has nothing to do with helping the poor, the needy, the downtrodden, etc., etc., etc. It has everything to do with who is my neighbor? Different question. Who is my In other words, who is Frank Ray? Who are you required to love? Oh, it's a big question now. And the short answer is what? Everyone. I am to love black, white, Chinese, Japanese, Asian, you name it. I am lesbian, homosexual. Oh, now we're getting, now we're getting down to it, huh? I'm to love everyone, ISIS, everyone. Why? Why? Because they carry the image of God. No, no, make no mistake. Every human being carries the image of God and they are of therefore immense eternal value. Treat them with dignity. Treat them with dignity. Can I give you a feel for this as we just close this thing out? You can kind of take this as, as the uh, challenge. Corey Ten Boom. I don't know. Uh, Put up the picture, Tim. Many of you might be familiar with the Ten Boom family simply because they came out with a book called The Hiding Place or the movie The Hiding Place. If you've never read the book or seen the movie, do. Really do. Um, The Ten Booms were an extremely godly family. They lived in Holland during World War II. They hid Jews. Tragically, they were betrayed. The entire Ten Boom family was taken either to work camps or death camps. Uh, in Germany. Corey miraculously survived due to a clerical heir. She was released early in 1945 from Ravensbrück. In 1947, God told Corey Ten Boom to return to the defeated Germany to proclaim the message that God forgives. Corey said, what people on earth needed to hear that message more? Corey told the crowd one evening, crowd like you, When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean. They're gone forever. Corey said the faces just stared back at her, not quite daring to believe such a truth. After the service, Corey saw a man working his way forward. She said, one moment I saw an overcoat and a brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back to me with the rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Sharp ribs beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook, and now he was right here in front of me. He thrust his hand out and he said, fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know as you say that our sins are now at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, just fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, but I I remembered him, the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd come face to face 
with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And Corey said, I just stood there. I who sins every day had to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could this guard erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I stood there for seconds. His hand held out. It seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I knew what I had to do. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Corey said, I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. These who are those who were unable to forgive their former enemies were, uh, were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I stood there, Corey said, I had such coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an act of the will. Jesus, help me, she silently cried out in her heart. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must, though, Lord, supply the feeling. And Corey woodenly mechanically thrust out her hand. And then she said something incredible took place. She said, the current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my entire being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I cried out, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. Corey said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, the genuine Christian, the genuine Christian must love all people. And you know what? Forgiveness is one of the greatest acts of love. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, do you remember Paul wrote, put it up, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It means it forgives. It forgives all. I'm going to ask you now as we move to baptism, are you the real deal? Are you? Am I? Am I really a true follower of Jesus? Then I'm going to love. Not some people. I'm going to love all people. That includes ISIS certain politicians who just irritate me? How about people who've hurt you? Can you imagine if we just took up this one challenge, how our homes would change, our places of work would change? Maybe our towns and cities might change if we just love.